1: Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Foom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, we took a look at one of Generation Z's favorite social media platforms. If you have a teenager, they're probably on it. It has photos with no public likes or comments and profiles with no followers. But it's still racking up 30 million monthly active users and $90 million in funding from Excel and Glen Capital. Now their users have taken on a new cultural power, inspiring memes and even their own Urban Dictionary entry. Visco is taking over and we sat down with its co-founder and CEO Joel Flory. We asked Joel to explain the app to Gen X.
2: It's been a community where, without likes or comments, we've created a safe space for people to be who they are. And with the Visco Girl trend that we're seeing, this again is no coincidence or no surprise. Um, but on the other hand, the scale of it has definitely caught us by surprise.
1: Let's just back up a little bit because neither of us are Gen Z. I have a kid who's 13 years old and he talks about Visco Girl. But explain what Visco is. You're an app that provides tools, but you're not a platform in and of itself, are you?
2: So, Visco is a mobile app that helps you take professional quality photos on your mobile phone. And with that, we're providing high-end tools for photo and video, but making them accessible on a mobile device. The key component of it, though, is a community that we have that drives you with creativity around inspiration, education, helping you express yourself.
3: How many users now, and how are you seeing the growth accelerate?
2: so we have roughly over 20 million weekly active users um, and the growth we've seen is really unprecedented from a, for us since 2012 when we launched the mobile app um, we've seen extreme growth in 2017 we launched a subscription service mm-hmm. last year we hit just north of two million paid subscribers and we're on pace to nearly double that this year
0: so,
1: drill down a little bit more into that demographic because we see pictures of Visco girls and become a meme, as Caroline mentioned. Um, she has a scrunchie, she wears these bracelets, Pura Vita bracelets, has a hydro flask, uh, a Swedish backpack, which I can't pronounce. What is the demographic breakdown? Where is the growth, if not the US, then outside the US? Yeah. So,
2: 80% of Visco's outside the US, and we see it from a complete global perspective. Wherever iOS or Android are available, Visco's there. And so, we see great. Growth in Asia and in Europe and in South America, and so really it 's around creativity and expression. So what we see especially with gen z so seventy five percent are under the age of twenty five on visco and what we 're seeing is specifically as we talk to them they 're the first generation that has lived their entire not only their entire lives online even before they 're born there 's a digital footprint where parents are registering totally. usernames on platforms for mm-hmm. them. And they've lived this life under pressure and scrutiny. And what they're looking for is this outlet where they can be who they are, a safe space without likes or comments. And since the beginning of Visco in 2013, when we built the community component, that's the way that we built it.
3: Do you think the individuals can remain in a safe space, remain authentic as you grow and grow and grow? Do you think that you're able to keep that novel element that you have compared to the likes of Instagram and you're worried that they might just copy you?
2: Yeah. So. Why I think it's critical and so unique for Visco is that, unlike other platforms where specifically Gen Z but others are also sharing how they want the world to see them, mm-hmm. on Visco it's about how you see the world. It's about your creative journey, your self-expression, and finding a safe safe space for you to share that.
1: Now, Visco is unique in that you don't, you mentioned there's no likes, there's no comments. You don't build this business based on eyeballs at all. You're right. not tracking that specifically was that a hard decision to make because Mm -hmm. i'm sure lots of uh, your backers would have said this is the obvious way to go you have a bunch of gigantic silicon valley companies that do that and do it very well and make a lot of money from
2: the beginning visco's been about building a quality product that people are willing to pay for so we started with the desktop plugin then a paid app then a free app within app purchases and now a subscription base and so visco's always been about paying for something
3: how do you evolve Is it, you just follow Gen Z through their life cycle? Do you ensure that you remain relevant to the younger audience and keep on going? Do you think at some point they will depart you and spread their their wings, what's?
2: So our focus is less on a specific demographic or really age group, as it is a mindset. Hmm. It's a mindset around investing in yourself. It's a mindset around that mental health is important and that creativity is an outlet for improving your mental health. And so we're helping people on that creative process and that creative journey of expressing themselves.
1: Then we spoke with Mark Bristow, president and CEO of Barrick Gold from the Denver Gold Forum. Right before our conversation, Barrick Gold announced it was well-positioned to achieve its targets for the year, with production trending toward the top end of its guidance range and costs staying down towards at the lower end. We started by asking him about the outlook for the company after closing the $18.3 billion deal to buy Rand Gold earlier this year.
4: Absolutely, and uh, uh, hello to all three of you. if you look back at what we set out to do, we, the, 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 the fundamentals behind the combination was get the best people, combine it with the best assets, and without doubt, you'll deliver the best returns or at least leading uh, returns in our industry. And so, looking back nine months, we've been at it nine months. Uh, you know, we've got everything. Uh, in place. We ticked, as I shared with the market today, we ticked all the boxes that we set ourselves to achieve by now and uh, we shared that and we actually took uh, time today to deliver another list to, to, to deliver against in the next 12 months. We have six Tier 1 assets, so we have the biggest concentration of Tier 1 assets in the industry, so there is the best assets. We've dealt with uh, a lot of our liabilities that uh, that we inherited from the Legacy Barrack and we have uh, you know, the f- solid foundation of the Nevada uh, gold mining uh, joint venture along with uh, Newmont Gold Corp in Nevada in America and uh, a big growth project out of Dominican Republic. Uh, we'd, we've made good progress with the liabilities in South America and, and also started to look to the opportunities. Africa has performed extremely well, uh, as we expected it to, a strong cash generator within the portfolio. We are selling Calgary in Australia right. and Pogra, We're now far down the road and creating a tier one asset out of that mine.
5: So, Mark, thanks to obviously the uh, impressive run that gold has had lately, that's helped your share price, obviously, uh, as it's sustained, that'll help continue cash flow. What do you do with that increase in cash? What opportunities does the gold rally now afford you?
4: I think it's important first to just touch on that rally and the gold price. I think the thing that we should point to is that the Barrick share since our transaction has outperformed both the GDX index and the gold price. So we are on our way to achieving what we want to achieve and that is to be the most valued mining company in general in our industry what do we do with the money that we make i've always said that when you set a plan and uh, you plan on a certain goal price and you get to the end of the first of the phase of that plan and the goal price is higher we should be able to share some of that enhanced uh, value creation with uh, our shareholders and we intend to do that
3: so more potentially share buybacks dividends what about more M&A. Is there any hunger for that at the moment? Mark, I know you're making disposals, but other areas are selling off their assets too. Is it time to be splashing the cash?
4: I think, you know, we don't splash cash. (laughs) (laughs) We've never done that. (laughs) Nice nice terminology, but it doesn't conjure up the sort of real deal business uh, formula that I've always adhered to. Yes you know we are we are all about creating value and so where there are opportunities to 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 add to our portfolio of tier 1 assets we will take them if we can uh, demonstrate both to ourselves and our owners that there's a opportunity to create more value and the the focus on cleaning up some of our um, uh, our portfolio is to, to allow for us to continue to manage uh, you know, a higher quality asset and, uh, and add to that portfolio of quality assets.
6: So when you talk about unlocking value, Mark, I I, I don't know how familiar you are with this group, this investor group that John Paulson is heading up. Uh, I I know it's targeting more some of the mid-sized companies that are kind of a tier below where uh, Barrick is. But I wonder when you listen to some of the arguments by investors in a lot of those companies about how some of these gold producers aren't necessarily operating at the right level, operating at the right cost structure, and have just sort of maybe missed an opportunity here with gold prices where they are, how do you sort of address those investor concerns uh, knowing that, I mean, let's face it, I mean, gold probably isn't going to stay where it is right now. Gold prices, I should say.
4: So I, I think that's the point that uh, that's, that we that, and I tried to get the market to understand this time last year. And that is, you know, we spend, because we, we are less than efficient in, creating value from the mines that we mine. We're always spending, both uh, managers and and uh, fund managers alike, are spending spend an enormous amount of energy on trying to explain a different way to make money. And really, there's only one way to make real uh, returns and deliver real value on a long-term basis for one's owners as a miner. And that is to find world-class assets or acquire them develop them and ensure that you're at the bottom end of the cost curve and that you have life of minds that can manage the cyclicality, particularly of the gold price, and thereby unlock value over the full cycle. And so that's, you know, and and I think the one aspect that that, uh, the group uh, pointed to was that Something I've been saying for too long: our industry's got too many managers managing too few assets. And so, by the there's no um, there's no trick in the logic there that if you reduce the number of managers and put more assets under the better managers, you'll unlock value just in the forms of synergies, general G&A uh, synergies, and you'll yeah. become more efficient and so the the market will look better and we will attract people back into our industry as investors.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter economic forum powered by Bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: This week, we got some economic data that may yet be another sign the U.S. housing market is breaking out of a slump. Sales of previously owned U.S. homes rose last month to the highest since March 2018. Contract closings rose 1.3% to an annual rate of almost $5.5 million. That exceeded all forecasts in a Bloomberg survey of economists. We broke down the numbers with Tim Myopoulos, former CEO of Fannie Mae and current president of Blend. It's a mortgage point of sale software company. Lower rates seem to be helping demand, but we asked him if there was enough of the right kind of supply out there for home buyers.
5: Well, supply has been a a major challenge in housing markets as uh, we're just not producing enough uh, new housing uh, to to meet demand. And in particular, uh, given the nature of the market dynamics, most of the housing that is coming online tends to be higher end housing. So we really just don't have enough uh, lower priced uh, product uh, that can meet the needs of first time home buyers.
3: So let's talk about the mission—the mission that now you are still sort of focused on and representing for affordable housing. You're using technology within the company Blend. This after you were, of course, at the helm of, of Fannie Mae for six years as chief executive. What is Blend doing to help, perhaps, alleviate this demand-supply issue?
5: Well, one thing—what Blend really does is we work with all lenders that are small, medium, and large uh, across banks, community banks, credit unions, and others to really make it easier uh, and faster and more accessible to borrowers to actually be able to get the kind of credit they need to buy a home. So we're not in the home building business. We can't alleviate that problem, but we are certainly making it possible for more qualified buyers to get uh, uh, easier access, more convenient access to the kind of capital they need to buy a home.
1: And once buyers do get mortgages, a lot of times those mortgages get sold to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. I wanna get your take, Tim, as the former CEO of Fannie Mae, what you think about the Trump administration's plan to free Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from government control. How realistic are the assumptions to make it happen?
5: Well, this has been a process that's been going on for 11 years now. The companies have been conservatorship for more than a decade. Uh, I think the good news is that the administration's plan really builds on uh, previous ideas that were uh, identified during the Obama years and have been built on since then. And the good thing about this is that it is uh, it will preserve the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. It will preserve. Uh, the the key infrastructure that Fannie and Freddie represent in in the housing finance market, it will put substantial private capital in front of any taxpayer exposure. And if all this is implemented successfully, I think it has um, uh, the the prospect of avoiding any kind of major disruption uh, in the housing market. So I think those are all good things. There are a lot of details that are not set forth in the administration's plans that that need to be developed, but I, I think this is a good step in the right direction.
3: A good step that could take some time. It looks as though it probably won't happen until 2021. Do you agree on that sort of time frame? Could it be sped up in some way?
5: I think there are aspects of this that could start relatively soon. For example, allowing uh, Fannie and Freddie to retain the earnings that they now send to the Treasury uh, to allow them to start building capital. That could happen uh, very soon. But there are a lot of other things that need to be put in place in order to be able to ultimately uh, recapitalize these companies and to release them from conservatorship, including figuring out what the capital regime needs to be, what kinds of uh, adjustments need to be made to their their footprints and the market. So there are a lot of additional steps that need to occur, but I think some of the first steps could happen relatively quickly.
1: Okay, so this will be a long, drawn-out process either way. In the meantime, when you look at the housing market as it stands right now, Tim, because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac certainly play a very critical role, do you think the housing market is now more dependent on these entities than it was before the 2008 crisis?
5: Look, I think that Fannie and Freddie continue to play an instrumental role, and I think policymakers have come to appreciate how important they are to our housing finance system. Um, but I, 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 I don't think that they are more uh, playing a bigger role than they did before the crisis. Uh, they are—they are actually much better institutions. They run much more effectively. Taxpayers are better insulated. They have much more effective uh, credit risk management techniques. Uh, they are profoundly different than they were before the crisis. So even though they continue to play a big role in the system, they are substantially different and substantially better than they were before.
3: I'm interested as you go on to help direct and lead a new business. You're obviously fully aware of people who give you money and the investor base and putting your hat back of having been the CEO of Fannie Mae, how much should the leadership worry about the current investor base of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac to a certain extent when a lot of them are high frequency traders that have just or hedge funds that have come in simply to dine out on the fact that they'll eventually be put back more into private hands?
5: Well, I can say that when I was running Fannie Mae, we didn't really think about uh, the existing shareholders of of the companies really at all. Our our number one focus was working on behalf of the taxpayers. The taxpayers Mm -hmm. uh, really uh, assisted these organizations in an enormous way. The good news is that taxpayers have received uh, the amount of their investment in these companies back, plus another $100 billion from Fannie and Freddie on top of that and the government still owns nearly 80 percent of both of these companies and if it chooses to sell that that those stakes the taxpayers can make that much more money so uh, i don't think that these organizations are doing anything to assist the speculators in their stocks they're really focused on how do they best serve the market how do they best serve taxpayers who are the people who've really backed uh, these companies
1: Then we finish things up with an emerging markets roundup with Teresa Berger, co-founder and CEO of Cardica Management. Cardica is one of the world's only woman-led activist investment firms. It invests exclusively in emerging markets. We began by asking her about the latest data out of Argentina. It was more bad news for President Macri. Argentina's economy shrank for a sixth straight quarter. GDP fell by 0.3% from the previous quarter, making it the longest quarterly recessionary stretch for the South American nation in at least 15 years. We began by asking Teresa what she learned from those numbers.
7: I'm not sure we learned anything new uh, when you've got 57 percent inflation rate and, and interest rates at 75 percent. It's a really dire picture. Mm. Uh, and of course, the sentiment was terrible when you had that primary poll with Macri doing so badly. Um, I'm not sh- I'm not sure we're doing dealing with anything very positive.
3: Your key expertise area is Brazil as well, and are we seeing different moon music there, or is uh, still are we starting to see any any hope, or is the emerging markets at the moment a bit of a tarnished brush?
7: Oh, I think uh, there are two things I really like in Brazil. Uh, One is the cost of capital is falling, and we saw, uh, as you probably noted, uh, 50 basis points cut in the interest rate there. So that means it's gone from uh, 14 and a quarter percent to five and a half percent in the last three years, which is a remarkable fall in the cost of capital, and that's led to the second thing I like, which is a big rotation for the domestic investors from fixed income. Mm. Why wouldn't you? buy a bond at 14 and a quarter, um, to now equities. And we can see that perfectly reflected in the fact that the stock exchange itself, B3, has gone up 100% in the last 12 months.
6: So- so, but are some of those structural issues that, that Brazil was trying to deal with, I mean, the pension reform and some of the other issues, I mean, is there enough confidence there that that's going to be dealt with, you know, in a in a time frame where it's going to be profitable for investors that are piling in at this moment?
0: Yes.
7: I think uh, from my point of view, I believe that pension fund will go through, um, and we should know uh, probably at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. And then there's an, uh, much more reform after that. So they're looking at tax reform, expenditure reform, mm-hmm. privatization. And and that's on top of the remarkable reforms that are very underreported that Michel Temer did mm. before Bolsonaro yeah. became president. And those have not even gone through the system yet. So I think there's a lot of reform momentum in, in Brazil.
3: I like the way you started off with sort of the central bank element to what's been happening over in Brazil. And how does this spill over to suddenly we've seen easing coming from China, for example, and this has been a key focus for the emerging markets. Is Are the emerging markets doing enough in terms of stimulus? Have they got more dry powder to be able to perhaps make them eventually outperform where they have been of late
7: well I think it's remarkable Our emerging markets has a lot of dry powder compared to the developed markets so central banks are pushing on a string in the developed markets but in the emerging markets are pushing on a basketball I mean they, <laughs> they've got a lot of room uh, on the monetary side so a lot of them can cut and because the current account deficits are smaller they can cut without uh, hurting their currencies and then um, not all but many of them also have room on the fiscal side. And obviously in the United States, we don't have any fiscal room. So uh, I think that there is a lot more policy room in the emerging markets.
6: There's been a lot of talk of EM, of uh, getting back into EM all year long. I mean, mm-hmm. at the start of this year, early this year, people were saying the trade of the decade redux again. And then, of course, when we got into what, people thought was going to be a rising interest rate environment, uh, there was a little bit of concern, or excuse me, uh, 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 easing uh, here in the U.S. There was a little bit of concern. I would have to think that e-investors have to be sort of breathing a sigh of relief after yesterday's Fed <laughs> meeting when it became clear, at least to a lot of folks, that the Fed isn't going down some prolonged or at least an aggressive easing cycle what
7: do you make of that? Um, I think that uh, EM investors would like to see easing because a US dollar has surprised really? everyone mm-hmm. by being so strong mm-hmm. which means the emerging markets currencies are down mm-hmm. and so August was one of the uh, worst months in about 22 months for emerging markets currencies. Mm-hmm. The, the worst months this year were May when there were earnings revisions and uh, August when you had the renminbi and the um, Argentine uh, vote yeah. um, and then And you also had central banks showing that they were spooked about the lower growth Hmm. uh, globally. Um, But I think personally that value, uh, this rotation from value to growth, is a story we absolutely need to look at. Value Uh, to growth or growth to value? No, value to growth. In In emerging markets, value stocks are at one time price-to-book and growth stocks are three times price-to-book and the growth stocks are 54% more um, uh, highly valued on a PE basis than the EM index as a whole. And this has got to change, this has got to mean revert. Um, And uh, the cousin of that is the small and mid caps that have also been crushed in the last couple of years because of so many ETFs uh, piling into the big cap stocks. So um, I'm with Michael Burry, uh, who thinks that uh, ETFs are sowing the seeds of their own destruction. And I I think we are going to see this rotation.
3: Before we dig into the rotation I want to go back to the US dollar argument because even with an easing cycle at some point being factored in, the dollar just resolutely remains higher because the U.S. economy is the outperformer. How yeah. how do you tackle that as a long-term emerging market investor?
7: Um, well, so in the past, when the U.S. has done well, it's been good for emerging markets. Um, but on the other hand, if interest rates are lower in the U.S., there's then a search for yield elsewhere, and that uh, props up the emerging markets. Um, and so we we are looking at, at uh, those two things kind of going hand in hand. And very often uh, they work together. And we've been a little surprised by the strength of the U.S. dollar, the continued strength of the U.S. dollar. And Donald Trump has been surprised by it as well <laughs> and has said he'd like to do something about it. And Mnuchin had a meeting about it. It's uh, highly unusual. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount that the president sometimes gets what he
6: wants. Uh, okay, uh, so th- I want to go back to two, th- well, let's, let's start with one thing you, you talked about with regards to the ETFs, kind of sowing the seeds of the destruction. It, there's this theory out there that, you know, a lot of people say with passive investing and Michael Burry's theory that we're just creating this crowded, you know, crowding conditions, as a bubble. But there's also an argument that what we see in passive investing isn't as passive as we would think, mm-hmm. that there are, is active management sort of at the front, that's followed by the indexes, which sort of follow the active managers and then the, the passive investors sort of bring up the rear. So at the end of the day, the theory is amongst is that the active managers are still sort of driving the ship.
7: Well, I don't know. In the U.S., we've gotten to the mm-hmm. point where the flows are over uh, 50%, right. and the stock is over 50% ETF. Right. In India, the 100% of the net inflows from foreigners this year were in ETFs. In mm-hmm. India. Now, the stock of investment is still active. Mm-hmm. Um, and the marginal investor, thank goodness, is the local mutual fund. And they are active. And when they come back into the market, they have been suffered a little shock. Uh, when they come back into the market, will probably come active. But I'm not, I don't know that uh, that, that, that will hold <laughs> as more people go into ETFs.
1: That does it for this episode of What'd You Miss This Week? If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.